welcome to episode 58 of So Important, the interview podcast. As longtime listeners know, this show prides itself on the diversity of guests that we bring to you, our loyal listeners. I guess you could say that the connecting theme for this show is, in a nutshell, that everyone has a story to tell. Our guest today is no exception to that rule. Our guest is Esther Sterabin, and Esther is a survivor of Nazi Germany. She was saved through a British-supported program called Kindertransport, which brought about 10,000 children out of Nazi Germany to Britain and other locations in Europe. This all took place in the months leading up to World War II, and Esther was only a two-year-old child at the time, separated forever from her birth parents. Her parents did not survive the Holocaust. By way of background, I will tell you that Esther studied at the University of Illinois and became a middle school teacher, and that she is still a volunteer at the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington. But I am going to forego a lengthy introduction and bring Esther into the conversation right away. This is her story, and I could not do it justice if I tried to summarize it. So on that note, Esther, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Well, Monty, I'm glad to be here. Esther, your story is remarkable, but before we delve into that, I'm hoping you can spend a moment talking about the Kinder Transport program, particularly the catalyzing events in Germany that led to its creation. My family had lived in Germany for over 200 years, but they were not made welcome with Nazism. So after Kristallnacht in 1938, in England, the Jewish community and other religious organizations went to the parliament to see if they could bring children to England to uh, rescue them. And the parliament said, yes, the children had to travel alone. And there was a 50-pound fee, which is close to $2,000 now, because they didn't want children to stay in England and take jobs away from English citizens when they grew up. So that's how the kinder transport started. The first kinder transport left Germany in December of 1938, so it really got started quickly. English people went over to Germany to help organize it, and the German Jewish community was involved. So my three older sisters had been living away from home because Jewish children were not allowed to go to public school, and they were living with aunts in Aachen. And they went on kinder transport in March of 1939. Luckily, my mother had a sister in London who found them places to live. So that's how they went to England and were placed in homes. They didn't get to say goodbye to our parents, and they never really spoke about their journey much. My second oldest sister mentioned getting food and things given through the window when they crossed over out of Germany. So I was still at home with my parents, and my brother was still home. He was four years older than I. And in June of 1939, my parents sent me on a kinder transport. I have no idea who took care of me, exactly how I got there, or anything about it. And an even bigger question for me and our family is, why didn't they send my brother? He was four years older. Why just me? I guess that's a question that you'll never really be able to answer. I mean, I have two theories. One is by that time he had been sent away to school, much closer than where my sisters were, so he wasn't at home when the opportunity came up. Or two, 
he was the only boy and there were four girls and boys were more special than girls at that time. And my parents were orthodox, so boys can say Kaddish, girls couldn't back then. Don't know. We'll never know. It's one of those puzzling things. I mean, in the same way, I have no idea how my parents arranged for me to go on the kinder transport. Were there other people from our little town of Adelsheim, which had maybe 10 or 11 Jewish families? Did somebody else go on that? One of the questions I was going to ask you is, how did your parents get involved in, in this program? But I guess there's just no way to know that, is there? There really isn't. I mean, the one thing I do know, when there had started to be a lot of information about the Holocaust on TV and that, my older sister had a few letters from our parents. Our parents were ultimately sent to concentration camps in France. And my mother had great faith. I mean, she really believed God, family, and friends would take care of us. So I don't know if the Jewish community in Baden, which was the state Arnelsheim was in, made the arrangements for the kids to go. I'm not a big researcher. I guess maybe if I did a lot of digging and research, I might find out. But I haven't, so I I don't know. Who who is the catalyst for this program? I mean, how did it actually get started? I I can't imagine the Germans were... Nazi Germany was saying, we want to do this. And how how did it actually come about? Well, if you remember at the beginning, they just wanted the Jews gone before they started killing them. The Jewish community in England, and then there was a a Jewish man in Germany who pushed for it. So it was actually people, individual people. I was placed by Quakers. The Quakers were very involved in rescuing people. While my aunt found places for my sister, I was placed by the Quakers. In fact, when I got to England, it was a Quaker woman who met me and took me on the train from London to Norwich, and then out to the Harrisons, who were my foster family. Now, you know all this because of letters and other documentation that you have? Basically, yes. My foster mother kept everything. And I have a, I had a letter. It's now in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I had a letter from the Quaker lady to my foster parents asking if they would be able to meet in Norwich, or did they need to bring me out to Thorpe? which was outside of Norwich. I have no idea which they did, but it talked about that I was coming. It talked about the fact that originally I was supposed to go to Wales, but that fell through. The thing that's really interesting to me, this letter said that I came from Berlin and my family was well-to-do. Well, Adelsheim is nowhere near Berlin and my family definitely wasn't well-to-do. My father had lost his business a couple of months before I was born, and his business was a small business. He sold grain to farmers and arranged the trade of cows or horses. Unfortunately, my father had been in World War I and had a leg amputated due to an injury. So even though he had trained to be a baker, he couldn't do that. What has been very interesting since I volunteered at the museum at some point a copy of the court case showed up and told me two things. Number one, that the business was actually in my mother's name. So I'm thinking maybe her family helped them get the business since they had been in the business in Rexing and where she came from. And two, the judge called my father Jew Rosenfeld. He never used his first name in the during the case. 
Now, I'm I'm assuming you have no memory of your parents, right? This is all from historical documentation? It's all from the letters, a little bit, but very little did my sisters talk about my family. And then there's a man in Adelsheim, Reinhard Lochmann, who answered a lot of questions for me. And when I did interviews at the Holocaust Museum, which has a first-person program, and the person running it would ask me things, and I would always say, I don't know that, but I would email Reinhardt. And he had an after-school club, and they did research. So I actually know a fair amount about my father, not so much about my mother, which is interesting. But I guess Adelsheim is where they lived, and some of my father's family lived in Adelsheim. So that's basically what Reinhardt has looked up. I did get to go to Rexingen, where my mother came from, and see the town. And at some point, Reinhardt, with somebody else, sent me a book, a cemetery book from Adelsheim. And there was a large Jewish community in Rexingen. And this book had a list of all the people buried there. So there were a lot of my mother's family there. So after they wrote this book about the Jewish family, the same person wrote a book about all the crusaders who were buried in the same place. So you have been back to see some of the, these historic areas, the, these areas of importance to you personally. I have been back three times. The first time I went back with Fred, my husband, and it was a really interesting visit. Originally, my sister and her husband were going to go with me, but my brother-in-law had a heart attack. I don't speak German. We got there around lunchtime and there was no one around. Apparently, the town closed down for lunch. And then when we did find people, no, the people at the town center didn't speak English, but the deputy mayor's wife spoke English. So we had a tour the next day and she translated. And we met a man, Mr. Wetterhand, who actually had known my parents. And we saw where the synagogue had been. We saw the outside of the house my parents had lived in. We saw the Jewish cemetery and where the synagogue had been. So that was an interesting thing. We did stay overnight there even though they told us we could go elsewhere. And I had nightmares that the Nazis were coming up the stairs to get me. It was important for me to see that. The next time we went back, by then, Mr. Wetterhan wasn't the person answering inquiries from the Jews. It was this Reinhardt. And he had arranged a commemoration of, of the deportation of the Jews from Adelsheim. And in fact, all of Baden were deported in 1940. Bertel and I my sister and I decided we they needed Jews at this. So we went, one of my nieces, and it was very interesting. Well, first of all, earlier than that, we had met a young man from Rexingen who was studying at American U in DC. And he said, if you want to go to Rexingen, you can stay with my parents. So we did stay with his parents. So we got to see some of Rexingen. And then we went to Adelsheim. And Reinhardt had put in the newspapers that we were coming, and he had made arrangements for us to visit inside the house where my parents had lived, which was really interesting. I had a, a grandson who was five or six at the time, and this family had a kid that age. And we went upstairs, and we saw all his toys were neatly put away, nothing all over the floor, all the same toys my grandson had. And again, we went to the cemetery, and Reinhardt has really make sure the cemetery is well taken care of. And he visits, and he puts the stones to say he's visited. I mean, he really took care of it. 
Bertle met people who had been in first grade with her when she was still allowed to go to school. And they talked about somebody had died in their first grade class. So she she talked about her with them. And after a day or so, she stopped translating for me. There were a couple of interesting things. We met someone who said his family, his father, had put food on my parents' doorsteps after dark because while they had ration cards, Jews didn't have them. And he said his mother was really afraid that he would get caught. And then somebody else also mentioned that her parents had traded things with my parents, so they had food. And I said to Bertle, do you think this is true? Because, you know, after the war, people can say anything. And she said there had been letters where our mother had mentioned that. So that was very interesting. The actual program, which was all in German and I didn't understand, but even not understanding it, it was very emotional. There were young people, older people, about a hundred people. And it was in the building that had been a synagogue in a neighboring town. I mean, these are small places. They're not really big. There was a klezma band. They read a letter from my mother. People talked. There were neo-Nazis outside and there were security outside. The thing that was really interesting to me, Reinhardt had no money really to do this, but he had a display of all the five families that had been in contact with him about their family, about what happened to them. And it was all, you know, Xerox. It wasn't like we do displays where we have endless money, but we were really glad we had been. It really shows that there were quality people, even at that time, who were trying to do something, even though they were putting themselves at great risk. Oh, yeah, back at, during the war. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And that, I mean, what Reinhardt had found out, not that he was in Ardelsheim then, was that people came from one village to another destroying the synagogues and the businesses on Kristana. And a couple of people from each village might join them. Luckily, my parents' house was not on the main road, so they were all right. It was really after Kristallnacht that this program got started, is, is my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, the transport. Absolutely. What do you know about the actual transport, what the conditions were for the children? And then tell us a little bit about the family that took you in. From what I understand, they went by bus or truck to train and then train, and then they had to take a boat to get to England. The family I lived with, my foster father, Uncle Harry, worked in a shoe factory, and the man who had owned it was Jewish and put a sign up, is anybody willing to take any of these kids? And they were willing. They were very fundamentalist Christians. They belonged to chapel. They went to chapel. And of course, I went to chapel with them. They spoiled me rotten, which was lovely. (laughs) They have one son who's still seven years older, and he was a wonderful big brother. But they were very welcoming, um, very protective. I didn't know much about what was going on in the war or in Germany. I'm sure they got newspapers. I'm sure they had a radio, but I don't remember listening to it or reading it. And they were very welcoming to my sisters. After the war, my sisters could visit. And they all, you know, became part of the family. Because I hadn't actually lived with my sisters because they went off to school in Aachen when I was a year old. So I only minimally knew them. The aunt in London kept kosher. I don't know if she was religious otherwise, but she kept kosher. And there was a certain tension between Auntie Dot, my foster mother, and Aunt Hannah. 
they did come to visit once. And one of Bertel's favorite stories was taking a live chicken that she'd gotten in Norwich on the train back to Ann, to Ann Hanner in London so she could have it killed kosher. They never did anything to try to uh, dissuade you from, from your religion. I went to chapel with them. At some point, I was supposed to be getting some religious instruction. Mr. Ramsey was the pastor of their chapel, and he was supposed to be teaching me Hebrew. I didn't learn it. I'm really bad at languages. I, I do think they used to send money to something called Hebrew Christians, but they never tried to convert me. I mean, it turns out that there were over 200 kinder transport people in that area, but I didn't know them. I asked Alan the other day when I spoke to him, I said, did you know anybody else on the kinder transport in school? He said, no. I mean, there were some Jewish people in the school he went to, but he didn't think they were kinder transport. So Alan is still alive? He is. He's still alive. He's going to be 93 this year. Do you, do you stay in touch, I imagine, pretty regularly? Oh, yeah. I usually talk to him on Fridays. Where, where does he live now? Still in England? Yeah, in North, in Norwich. He lives in an old house that was built in the 1890s. What about some of the other survivors who, who came across on the kinder transport? Do you stay in touch with them? Do you have contact with them or did you? We used to have an organization, kinder transport organization, that someone in England started it and then it got started here. So I think that was in the 1990s, the first one. And we did used to meet pretty regularly. And that was the first time we went to a conference. That was the first time I'd met anybody other than my sisters. Then we had a group here. When I was growing up, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't even know. I knew how I got to England. I didn't know it was called kinder transport because, as you probably know, people didn't talk about this stuff back then. And I belonged to a memoir writing group at the Holocaust Museum. And I sent something I had written to my friend from junior high and high school. And she said, I never knew that was that I was on the kinder transport. And I thought, well, I didn't know that's what it was called either. I've seen you describe your experience in England as some of the best years of your life, that you were really happy there. I was very happy there. I would have been happy to stay, but I had no choice. I mean, my parents... Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. How did you make the trip to the United States? Well, Bloomsbury House, which was the organization that looked after us, made arrangements for us to come here. We had uncles here. And in the meantime, my brother had come here with a thousand children. And my parents had told my oldest sister, who was 12 years older than I am, that she needed to keep us together as a family and we needed to come here. So we did. I came in 1947. Two of my sisters came in 47. My other sister had joined the British Army, so she couldn't come till she was demobbed from the army. And we lived, my brother lived with one aunt and uncle, and we lived with a different aunt and uncle. And once both my middle sister went off to college, which would never have happened in Germany, and I got to go to college, which wouldn't have happened in Germany either. Once my sisters both had jobs, my two older sisters they got an apartment and took me to live with them, thank goodness, because it wasn't very nice at my uncle's. And that's what happened. Auntie Dot had written to my uncle here to ask if I could stay, and she kept the letter he wrote back. And he said, you know, that we needed to all be together with the uncles and my brother, thanked her for taking care of us, and this and that. And then when Bloomsbury House got passage, you know, they would get it at the last minute. Bertel 
got the call and the Harrisons didn't have a phone. Nobody had a phone back then. So she called the police and they came and knocked on the door and said they had to take me to London the next day. And they did. I mean, Uncle Harry couldn't take off work. Alan was supposed to get some big prize that day, but he came. And they took me to London and handed me over to Bertle. And off we went on the Queen Mary, which had a strike the first day. There was somebody from the royal family on the ship, so it didn't. that was a good day to strike. But luckily, Bertle's boyfriend had given her a salami, and my aunt had given her a loaf of bread, so we were okay. And then we came here. I was seasick. I was miserable. And what I learned later, Bertle didn't really want to come either. She was very happy in London. She had her friends, her job. But we came here. My uncles met us in New York. Now, Bertle knew one uncle, Uncle Sally, because he had lived in Ottelsheim. And my other uncle had married an aunt of mine, so she didn't know him. And we came down to D.C. We lived in D.C. on North Capitol Street in a big house where there was another refugee family, my aunt. My uncle, my aunt's mother, two cousins. There were a bunch of us in that house. How many people were in that house? Well, I don't remember how many people were in the refugee house. There were the four of us, my aunt, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten plus the refugee family. So it was a lot of people. Very different from living with the Harrisons out in the country with just Alan, Auntie Dot, and Uncle Harry. It was a big change for me. I mean, not only was I now Jewish, really Jewish now, but school was different. I didn't know these families. I'd never heard of them, let alone know them. And I didn't really know my sisters. Everything was different. And I was living in a big city with a streetcar going up and down. (laughs) We used to ride the bicycle to get into town when we lived in, well, I guess there was a bus, but we mostly rode bicycles. So it was really different. 10,000 kids is not a lot. I'm sure you've reflected on that, how fortunate you were. I feel like I was very lucky. I mean, not only did I get to go on the kinder transport, I had parents who were willing to let us go because not all parents were. And I lived with a wonderful family who really loved me and took care of me. And even though I thought it was awful at my uncle's house, you know, they were just immigrants trying to make a go of it in a new country, which I can see now that I'm old and appreciate. I didn't see it then. And my sisters took care of me. So I, I, in many ways, though, having to leave my home and my parents was awful. I've been blessed along the way, as they say. When you think about today, you know, maybe we don't appreciate some of the uh, niceties and things that we have. And I'm just wondering, when you think about the lessons of all of this, and what you'd want people to take away from your experience. What would you say? Well, I, I think it's important to think we can we can do things that help people. We can help one person. Most of us are not going to be in a situation where we're going to do be able to help hundreds of people. But I think we can see where people need a friendly person. I, I taught middle school for a long time, and I and I do a lot of talks to kids. And the thing that I say to the children is, if you see someone who's eating alone, it isn't going to hurt you to invite them to eat with you. If you're in the hall and someone's being bullied, as long as you're not in danger, just say hello. It helps. But I also think it's very important for us to teach history, to learn history, 
because there are patterns to all this. I mean, it was never quite as bad as the Nazis trying to annihilate Jews, but there are genocides all over the world. And we just need to look at what's happening in our country. We don't have book burning, but we have book banning. We have all kinds of propaganda. And if you know history, you can see the patterns evolving. And I think it's very important to vote, to pay attention to what's going on politically, and to do whatever you can to help. I think we can't just learn, maybe advocate. I think we all need to do whatever action we can do. And for most of us, it's going to be a pretty small step, but everything helps. I mean, when the children from Latin and South America were being separated from their parents, I was so miserable because what was I doing? And some of those kids were so little, they wouldn't even know their name to be able to be reunited. And unlike the Nazis who kept records, there's so much that goes on that if you look at it, the world continues to do some really pretty awful things to people. That is true. And those are those are great words that you expressed. And I think the other thing that I take away from your story, Esther, is that even in the most trying conditions, there's people who want to do the right thing. I think so. I think they really are. And they're people who are working for the good. Well, I think you're one of those people, Esther. I'm, I'm very grateful that you came and spent a little time with me and shared your remarkable story. Thank you for inviting me. Well, absolutely.